All right, you can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 17. If you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table, it's on page 12. Um, and, uh, and, and this, this chapter... This chapter gives the, the final details of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so, so that together with chapters 12 and 15, chapter 12, 15, and 17, we get this full picture of the covenant that God has made with Abraham. In chapter 12, God promised to give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. Uh, and he promised to bless the nations through Abraham, Right? In chapter 15, God formalized those promises into a covenant by performing a covenant ceremony. And then here in chapter 17, we'll see God expand the covenant relationship uh, by revealing his promise in, in more detail and by calling Abraham and his offspring to an act of obedience with the threat of disinheritance if they fail to obey. Together with these, or these three chapters make up the, what's called the Abrahamic Covenant, okay? What we know as the Abrahamic Covenant. And this lays the foundational beginnings for the nation of Israel to gain its identity, and it sets the stage for the blessing that would come to the nations. So before we dig in, I just want to ask the Lord one more time for help, and then we'll, we'll go. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it brings to us. We thank you that it teaches us who you are, who we are, and what we need, and all that we've been given in Jesus Christ. May we see these things and give you praise this morning through it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, confession time. How many of you are Christmas present peekers? Nobody? How many of you know a Christmas present peeker? Anybody? Okay, well, that's... So, so here's what a Christmas present peeker does, right? The present is out under the tree. You just kind of, maybe you start by like walking by it, you know, and just doing one of these things and just kind of testing it out. You, you, you start to study the shape of the box. You, you, you might pick it up when nobody's looking, right? And, and check it and see if it's weighted maybe to one side or the other, or if it's evenly distributed, Right? Or you might shake it a little, but carefully, just in case it's breakable. Trying to figure out what you, what, what's inside it, right? Maybe you even have super ninja skills, and you're able to open one of the like, side flaps of the wrapping paper without tearing it and giving away that you did that, right? Take it and peek at the box on the inside. We're looking for hints as, as to what's there. Sometimes, though, we get so excited about the, 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 the gift itself, and it's good, right? The gift is great. But, but we, we almost um, uh, uh, separate that or we overlook the goodness and the generosity of the giver. The gift itself is great, but the one who gives the gift, that's where the true greatness is found, right? God is the giver of good gifts. And throughout Scripture, his good gifts come to us in the form of covenants. Now, we've talked about We've used the word covenant, especially since we've gone through uh, from, from chapter 12 on. We talked about the covenant with Noah, and, um, and that was back in, in chapter 6 or 9, excuse me. And now with Abraham, we've been talking about covenant. Um, but, but we've been operating sort of under the assumption that everybody knows what that is. And so before we jump in this morning, I think it's helpful for us to, to just um, clear up some of the foundations of what a God-given covenant is 
There's a pastor and author by the name of Dr. Samuel Renahan, and he wrote a book called The Mystery of Christ, His Kingdom and His Covenant, or His Covenant and His Kingdom, excuse me. And in that book, he offers a definition and a couple of ground rules that I think are really helpful in understanding the nature of any covenant that's initiated and established by God. And so I want to just briefly highlight those things because I think they'll provide a helpful context for us as we work our way through Genesis chapter 17 this morning. So let's just start with the, with the definition of a covenant, okay? Uh, the really short definition is that it's a guaranteed commitment. Covenant is a guaranteed commitment. It's different from a promise because the covenant adds penalties or sanctions to guarantee the fulfillment of that promise. A covenant becomes a covenant when the threat of penalties is added, okay? For example, in chapter 12, God made promises to Abram, right? But those promises became a covenant in chapter 15 when God passed through the divided animal carcasses and said, uh, as a way of saying, may I become like these animals and more so if I fail to keep my promises. God guaranteed his commitment, his his promise to Abram by threatening sanctions upon himself if he failed to keep them. Here in chapter 17, we're going to see God add a covenant obligation to Abram and Abram's descendants and threaten them with covenant penalties if they fail to obey the obligation. So there's our, 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 our short definition. Let's, let's uh, look at a couple ground rules here. Ground rule one, God is our creator and we are his creation. What does that mean? That means that he owes us nothing and we owe him everything, right? This is important because it means that when God enters into a covenant with, a, with man, it's never out of some kind of obligation that God owes to the man, to mankind. When God makes a covenant, God determines the parties involved, the promises that are made, the precepts that must be kept, and the penalties that are enforced for breaking the covenant. He determines the parties, the promises, the precepts, the penalties. Because it's God's covenant. He's the one that's initiating it because it's his. No man has any say in determining those things but must agree to them because God is the one who has come up with the covenant. Why? Because man owes God everything. God owes man nothing. Ground rule two, because God is good and God does good, he establishes his covenants out of his own goodness and for his own good purposes. A covenant is a good gift from the good giver. When God establishes a covenant with man, he adds blessings and obligations that, be go, that go beyond the natural creator-creation relationship. The blessings that God offers in his covenants are are unavailable to man without those covenants by which he enters with them. And any obligations and penalties that God adds are for the purpose of dispensing those blessings to man rather than keeping them from man. God's covenants magnify his kindness and his grace to offer man blessings that man could never think of on his own, could never uh, inherently deserve and could never receive by any other means. Covenants are a good gift from a good giver. So with all that in mind, we can, we can sort of lengthen this definition and say this. 
a, a God-given covenant is one in which he defines his special relationship with another party through the establishment of his good promises and precepts and guarantees commitment through the threat of penalties. A God-given covenant is one in which he defines his special relationship with another party through the establishment of his good promises and precepts, and he guarantees commitment through the threat of penalties. So let's take a look here at Genesis 17 and see how God completes this covenant that he's entered with Abraham here in this chapter. He begins with the parties and the promises. Look at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and spoke with him, and God spoke with him, excuse me. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful, and I will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and and your future offspring through their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. Thirteen years have passed since last week. Since the end of chapter 16, where we left off last week, and the whole fiasco with Sarai and Hagar. Thirteen years have passed. That means that Ishmael, Abram's son with Hagar, is now a teenager. He's 13 years old when the Lord appears to Abram. And the Lord tells Abram, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Okay? This is the first time in anywhere of Scripture that God refers to himself in this way. God Almighty. And it's a fitting name to use because God is going to show Abram his power to keep the covenant that he made with him. It's also a reminder that God is king over all things. He's sovereign ruler. And as sovereign king, he commands Abram to keep living in his presence and be blameless. The Hebrew there literally means walk before me without blemish. Now remember back in chapter 15, it says Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God is calling Abram to continue to walk in that righteousness, to continue to walk in that righteousness by faith, just as, if you remember, Enoch walked with God and Noah walked with God. They weren't perfect men, but they were righteous men because they walked by faith. And Abram responds by falling face down in reverence to God Almighty. In this verse, God reiterates the parties, right, of the covenant. Verse 2, he calls it, my covenant between me and you, talking to Abram. Verse 3, he says, my covenant with you. In verse 7, he says, my covenant that's between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. Notice in all three of those cases, God calls it my covenant. It's his. He's the one that's establishing it with Abram and the generations of Abram's offspring Uh, generation after generation. God also reiterates and expands his promises to Abram here. In chapter 12, God promised to make Abram into a great nation. In in chapter 15, God promised to make Abram's offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. I think it was chapter 13, he talked about making them as numerous as the dust of the earth, right? 
Here in chapter 17, God expands this promise when he says, I will multiply you greatly and you will become the father of many nations. I will make you a great nation. And now he's saying, I will make you many nations. And to reflect that promise, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And now we can finally call him Abraham. Abram means exalted father, which is reflective of that promise in chapter 12 to make Abram's name great. Abraham means father of many nations, which is reflective of the expansion of God's promise here. But, but God expands the promise in another way. He promises not only to make nations come from Abraham, but also kings. Kings and nations, he says. God is promising royalty to Abraham and his descendants. This promise will be filled out even more in even more detail when we get to Genesis chapter 49. And Abraham's grandson, a.k.a. Israel, blesses all 12 of his sons that will end up making the 12 tribes of Israel. And what does he say to Judah? He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. All of this is foreshadowing the arrival of King David of the tribe of Judah and with whom God will establish another covenant. And what does he say to David? I will make your throne an eternal throne. One of your descendants will sit on it and reign forever. Who is that descendant? Jesus Christ. More on that in a little bit. But for now, we need to get back to God and Abraham because that's where we're at. God promises two more things here. To be the God of Abraham and his offspring and to give them all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession. As God develops the tribes of Israel into a great kingdom nation. This is a, the kingdom of Israel that we're talking about here. Canaan will be their new home and God will reside there with him. That's the promise that he's making. Along with the expansion of, uh, of his promises, God adds an obligation of obedience for Abraham and his descendants. If they want to enjoy the covenant blessings, they must keep the covenant obligation. Look at verse 9. God also said to Abraham, As for you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, that you are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Notice again how God says, my covenant. It's his. Because God is the one who's made the covenant. God is the one who has every right to determine the parties involved, the promises that are made, the precepts that must be kept, and the penalties that are enforced for breaking the covenant. And in these verses, God expands the covenant by adding a precept and a penalty. What's the precept? The precept is that Abraham and his descendants must follow this. They must be circumcised. Every male in Abraham's household, whether they're born in his household or purchased from a foreigner. What's the penalty? 
The penalty they face if they fail to obey this command is to forfeit the covenant blessings and be disinherited from the covenant people. We're told this in verse 14. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant, God's covenant. If they don't cut off what God has required in their flesh, then God will cut them off from the covenant. The language is really clear. Circumcision itself was not invented for Abraham and his descendants. There's historical evidence that it was practiced by other nations like Egypt, but circumcision was assigned to Abraham and his descendants by God to serve as a sign of the covenant that he made with them. As a sign, circumcision served as a way to identify those who were, per, were participants in this covenant with God and those who weren't. Anyone who was circumcised in obedience to God's command was someone who belonged to the covenant, and anyone who was not circumcised in obedience to God's command was someone who did not belong to the covenant. So circumcision then served as a sign of both the promise of the covenant blessings and the threat of the covenant curses. Now, at first, the addition of circumcision to the covenant seems to create some problems with what we saw back in chapter 15. Because back there, God guaranteed his promises to Abraham by passing, if you remember, through the animal carcasses by himself. He put Abraham in a deep sleep. That means that he didn't require anything from Abraham in order to fulfill those promises. But now here it appears that God is requiring something for, of Abraham and his offspring in order for them to receive the promised blessing. So which is it? Is the covenant unconditional or is it conditional? Yes. Yes is the answer. How's that possible? Well, I needed some help with this too. And so again, I found Dr. Renahan's explanation helpful here. He says the apparent tension between God's guaranteed promises and the threats of expulsion from the kingdom for disobedience is resolved in this that although the promises were nationally guaranteed, they were not individually guaranteed. In other words, okay, God will unconditionally fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, but not every Israelite as an individual will, will, will enjoy the blessings of the covenant because not every Israelite will obey God's commands. Okay, so think with me for a minute. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Genesis is part of that Pentateuch. Uh, who's Moses writing to initially? It's the, it's the wilderness generation, the generation that grew up wandering in the wilderness with their parents, and they're getting ready to take the promised land that came from this covenant. They're preparing to go into that promised land, and they get to read this history of Israel, how their parents failed, right? This is an example um, after 40 years in the wilderness, they wandered because of their parents' disobedience and unbelief. Guess what happened to their parents? They died. They died in the wilderness. They were Israel. They were Israelites. But they didn't experience the blessing because they disobeyed. This new generation, though, before they could go into the promised land, in Joshua chapter 5, if you go read that, God will tell them they need to be circumcised. Why? Because their parents failed to do it when they were born. These kids were born in the wilderness. Before they can inherit the promised land, they have to participate in this covenant 
precept. In every subsequent generation of Israelites, there were individual people who cut themselves off from the covenant while God remained faithful to the people as a whole. In the book of Exodus, God expanded his, on his covenant with Abraham when he gave Moses new laws for the people to follow. It's called the Mosaic Covenant, but it's built on the foundation of the Abrahamic Covenant. Once the people entered the promised land and were formed into an official nation, they needed some more rules and guidelines to help them uh, live in relationship with each other and with God. While they remained a, a nomadic uh, small family tribe in Abraham, They didn't need all those rules. Circumcision was enough to unite them together and identify them as God's people. Because God is the one who makes the covenant. God is the one who determines the parties, the promises, the precepts, and the penalties. He never makes a covenant out of obligation to man. But because God is good, and he does good, he establishes his covenants for his good purpose of showing his kindness and bringing special blessing to those with whom he makes the covenant. And we see that kindness overflow to Sarai here in the next few verses. Look at verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, Do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down, and then he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a ninety-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. Just as God gave Abram a new name back in verse 5, he also gives Sarai a new name here. Sarai and Sarah actually both mean the same thing. They both mean princess. But by renaming her God Almighty, El Shaddai, who who introduced a new name for himself even in this, right? He's confirming his special relationship with her. And it's here that we learn along with Abraham that God will bring the promised son from Sarah's womb. Finally, we get to know this, right? Now, did Sarah deserve this? Not if we go back and read chapter 16. Her track record of faith and obedience isn't great, right? Twice here, though, twice, God says, I will bless her. I will bless her. It's out of his own glory, out of his own goodness, out of his own grace that he does so. And he gives her this same promise that he gave to Abraham in verse 6. Nations and kings that will come from Abraham, guess where they'll come from as well? From Sarah. And they'll come through the son that they have together, the promised son, the son of the covenant. Abraham falls face down again after he hears this, only it's a little more irreverent than the last time we saw it earlier in the chapter. 
He laughs to himself at what God Almighty has promised to do. You ever done that? He's 99 years old right now. Even if they conceive, like, that day, he'll be 100 years old before, before Isaac is born. Sarah's been barren her whole life. Now she's 90. What God has just told him seems impossible to Abraham, and so he laughs. And then he essentially says, are you sure we can't just go with Ishmael? That seemed pretty good last, last chapter, right? But he's talk, who's he talking to? God, God Almighty, El Shaddai, the one who entered into this covenant by his own glory and goodness and gave these promises to Abraham. The God who keeps his promises, the God who never lies and never fails. And this God Almighty says, the son will come from Sarah. He just, I love it. Like, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. God says, no. No. That's not my plan. Sarah will have the son. Regardless of the fact that she's been barren her whole life, regardless of the fact that she's now 90 years old, and in a bit of humorous irony, God tells Abraham that after Sarah gives birth to his son, you need to name him Isaac. You know what Isaac means? He laughs. We're going to see more wordplay on that as these other chapters unfold. God makes it clear that his covenant with Abraham will be passed on and continue through Isaac and his future offspring, not through Ishmael. And this introduces another important distinction that we need to note here. By choosing Isaac and not Ishmael, God is narrowing the source of the promised blessing to the nations. When he promised blessing to the nations back in chapter 12, now we start to see, yes, it's coming through Abraham's family, but now it's coming through a particular line in his family. It's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. God will confirm his covenant with Isaac, even though Ishmael is a physical descendant of Abraham, and even though he will be circumcised, we'll see that here in a moment, the covenant will not be passed to him through, from Abraham. It'll be passed to Isaac. And then with Isaac's son, Jacob, Jacob will inherit the covenant from Isaac, and God will rename I, uh, Jacob, Israel, and Israel, he, the, the one who, who will bring about the promised blessing to the nations will be an Israelite, not an Ishmaelite. But Ishmael won't be completely excluded from God's blessings. Look at verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with Abram, with, when he finished talking with him, God withdrew. He went up. He ascended from Abraham. Remember, God is good, and God does good. That's all he ever is. That's all he ever does. Just as he heard Hagar's cry of affliction in chapter 16 and he had compassion on her, he also hears Abraham's plea here that ex and extends that compassion to Ishmael, Abraham's son whom, he, who, whom Sarah, uh, uh, Hagar bore to him. 
God's promise to make Ishmael into a great nation, it echoes the promise that he gave Abraham in chapter 12 to make him into a great nation. As Abraham's son by the flesh, Ishmael will benefit from Abraham's special relationship with God, but Ishmael will not inherit the covenant from Abraham. Again, God makes it clear that the covenant will be passed on to Isaac, and then he tells Abraham when Isaac will be, will be born. He says this time next year. After 25 years of waiting on this promise, Abraham will finally be able to hold his promised son in his arms. It's coming. It's coming. Confident in God's promise, Abraham wastes no time in doing what God commands. Look at verse 23. So Abraham took his son Ishmael and those born in his household or purchased, every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. On that same day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So much repetition there. It's emphasizing the urgency with which Abraham obeyed. He wasted no time. God said that Abraham and every male in his household must be circumcised or be cut off from the covenant. So on that very day, after the Lord ascended, after he went up from Abraham, Abraham did just as God said to him. Abraham, Ishmael, and every male in Abraham's household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner, was circumcised in obedience to God's command. So, that's Abraham's covenant, but now we need to ask, like, if we just walked away from this now, how how does this apply to us? What does this mean for us now? How do we benefit from God's covenant from Abraham? Do we need to be circumcised in order to enjoy God's covenant blessings? The answer is yes and no. And that answer becomes clear when we understand the distinction between Abraham's faith and Abraham's circumcision and when we see how God's covenant with Abraham leads to God's covenant with us. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul helps us with the distinction between Abraham's faith and his circumcision. Romans 4, 11 and 12 says, And he, meaning Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised in the flesh, who are not only circumcised in the flesh, but who also follow in the footsteps of faith, a.k.a. walk with God in the faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision did not make Abraham righteous. He was already credited with righteousness through faith. Circumcision was a sign of confirmation that God gave to Abraham. It's a way of confirming what Abraham believed would actually happen. As God had promised, a son would come from Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations, and that blessing would be a gift of righteousness by faith that Abraham himself received. And those who were circumcised in the flesh became the people from whom this promised son would come. 
The physical circumcision marked them out as the people. And the land of Canaan marked, was marked out as the place. But a kind of circumcision was still needed in order for righteousness to be credited to those who believe along with Abraham. It's not a circumcision of the flesh, but God calls it in, in several places a circumcision of the heart. And that would come not through God's covenant with Abraham, but through the new covenant in the promised son of blessing, the one who would come, he brought with him a new covenant. We're now in the Advent season. It's a time to look back on the anticipation and the longing of the people of Israel as they waited for their promised son of, bless, of blessing. Generation after generation after generation, they waited and they waited and they waited. Some people obeyed and kept going. Some people failed and they were cut off from the covenant. But the nation of Israel was preserved so that the promised son could come. They waited for the promised son of blessing, the Messiah king who would reign forever in their minds in the kingdom of Israel. But it's also, Advent is also a time to celebrate that that long-awaited son has come, Right? The true gift has arrived. The covenants that God made with Abraham and with Moses and with David were gifts in and of themselves. We need to understand that. Anytime God enters into a covenant, it's, it's from his own glory and goodness and, and blessing. But they weren't the true gift. They weren't the true gift. They were the box that contained the gift. God wrapped it carefully in the mystery of Christ. Each, co each covenant hinted at what was inside. Those covenants allowed God's people to study the shape of the box, to, to pick it up and, and, and check its weight, to, to shake it a little. There were clues in all of these covenants that were pointing to, to the, the true gift that was inside. This is the mystery of Christ hidden And that true gift wasn't fully revealed, revealed until Christ came. And when he came, he brought a new covenant with him. Hebrews 8 and 9 tell us that when Christ brought the new covenant, the old covenant became obsolete. Once you've opened the present, you no longer need the box that it came in. God's covenant with Abraham provided the people and the place from which the promised son of blessing would come. And once Jesus came, the Abrahamic covenant was no longer needed because God brought the promised blessing to the nations through the promised son and his new covenant. The new covenant in Jesus Christ. The parties of this new covenant are God and man. And because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he's the mediator of the new covenant. Not only is a participant in it for both sides, he mediates it between us and God. Hebrews tells us this. The promise of this new covenant is salvation through the forgiveness of sin and the gift of righteousness by faith. And this promise is guaranteed because Jesus Christ, the promised son of Abraham and the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited one, he paid the penalty of sin through his sacrificial death on the cross. But there are no precepts that God requires in order for one to be a recipient of this promise. 
And that's because this promise is not earned by works. It's received by faith. Galatians 6.15 says, For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? A new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Romans 10, 11 through 13, for scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. Because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him for everyone, if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautiful covenant promise doesn't matter whether or not you have Abraham's circumcision of the flesh. What matters is that you have Abraham's circumcision of the heart, and that comes through faith in the promised son. Your faith doesn't have to be perfect. Praise God for that. Amen? But it must be in the perfect one. Jesus Christ who lived a perfectly obedient life to the Father, who died a perfect, perfectly sufficient death on the cross to pay the penalty of sin and bear God's righteous wrath against sinners, and who rose in perfection three days later so that all who trust on him can receive his righteousness and be saved forever. Is your heart uncircumcised? If not, why not let today be the day? that that takes place? Why not let today be the day that you put your hope in Christ and receive God's promised blessing of salvation? For those of us that have done that, we're members of the new covenant in Christ. And as members of God's new covenant in Christ, we now follow all of the commands. This is what we're, 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 we're supposed to do, right? God calls us to follow all of the commands that he's given to us in his word, but we do it as a reflection of the promised righteousness that we've already received in him freely. The promise is not dependent upon our obedience. It's dependent upon Christ's obedience. And now our obedience is dependent upon the grace that we continue to receive from him as we continue to trust in him. Because we're new creations in Christ, we'll live in a way that's reflective of that. We'll live in a new way in Christ, no longer for ourselves and our glory, but for him and his glory. Again, we won't be perfect in this, but because we, our faith is in the perfect one and, and because of his perfection that's already been credited to us as righteousness through faith in him, we have the joyful freedom to celebrate his grace when we obey and, and, and show that it's God's power in us. And we have the joyful freedom to seek his grace when we fail. What a beautiful covenant promise. Grace-driven obedience to God is visible evidence that we are members of his new covenant in Christ. God has also given us other visible evidence. The signs of the covenant, whatever the covenant is, the signs of that covenant reflect the promises of that covenant. They make the covenant visible. In God's covenant with Noah, it was the rainbow. In his covenant with Abraham, it was circumcision. In his covenant with Moses, it was the Passover and animal sacrifices, the temple. 
in the new covenant that God has made with us, baptism and the Lord's Supper make God's new covenant promises visible to us. And he's given them to us as a way to make our participation in his new covenant promises visible. Baptism is a visual picture of a new creation life through death. It shows that we've passed through the waters of judgment and have received God's salvation. Romans 6, 3 through 5 says, Paul saying this, Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For we, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Baptism displays God's promise that all who have faith in his Son are united to Christ through his, in his life and death and resurrection and have become new creations in him. It also displays our belief in that promise. It's a visual representation of our circumcised hearts. So have you been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ? If not, I want to implore you to prayerfully consider that. Look in God's word. See what he has to say about it. Spend some time in passages like Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and the end of Matthew 28. There's booklets over there at the table that help walk through some of that. If you have questions or thoughts as you do these things, I'd love to, to pray with you and, and talk with you through those. On the care card, there's a box that, that's uh, baptism. You can check that and we can talk more about it. You can email me, call me. In a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. The bread and the cup are also visual reminders of new creation life through death. They remind us that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed to guarantee that new creation life for all who trust in him. They serve as a visible display of God's promise of forgiveness of sins and our participation in that promise through faith in the one who died to secure that forgiveness. So when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. That means that the Lord's Supper is also this longing and anticipation for the second advent of Christ. It's a literal foretaste. We're saying that, a foretaste of, of, uh, of deliverance. Thank you. It's a literal foretaste of what's to come in the wedding supper of Christ and his bride, the church. That's why we take it together as his body, united to him and to one another through faith. So that means that if you don't have faith in Christ, you're not a participant in the new covenant, and you won't be able to participate in the wedding supper to come unless you're first united to the bridegroom through faith in him. And if you're not a participant in the wedding supper to come, then the Lord in his new covenant here is telling us we should not participate in the Lord's supper now unless you first put your trust in Jesus. Because of what it represents, because of who it points us to, his promise, God's promise, listen, it's not to... to, to, to Keep blessings from us. It's to help us see how we get them. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Jesus says that himself. 
God's promise is that everyone who calls on Christ's name will be saved. So again, I ask you, if you don't have faith in him, why not call on his name today? God is the giver, the good giver of good gifts. And he's given us his covenants. His covenants are good gifts to his people. And because they are his covenants, he determines the parties and the promises and the precepts and the penalties of each covenant. We ought to give thanks today as we read. We ought to give thanks for God's covenant to Abraham. But we ought to also give thanks that we are no longer under that covenant. Why? Because in Christ, God has fulfilled his covenant to Abraham, to Israel, to the nations. Praise God for graciously circumcising our hearts and giving us his new covenant in Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, we thank you for your new covenant grace in Christ. We thank you that through no work of our own, you have brought us into this covenant through your son as we place our faith in him. Thank you for the guaranteed commitment that you have made to us and sealed it through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, the promised one. And we thank you, God, that in this new covenant we have promises to look forward to that are yet to be fulfilled. When Christ returns, his enemies are put under his feet at last. Sin, death, pain, tears are no more. And we will dwell forever with Christ our bridegroom as his bride, pure and spotless, walking with him. And you, our Father, for all eternity. What a beautiful covenant promise. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.